It's a, it's a wonderful passage <clears throat> that we have today. Uh, the, the combination of humour and uh, some very dark humour, uh, as well as the seriousness that, that is there. And uh, one of my jobs with City Bible Forum is visiting, uh, catching up with workers around Canberra and finding out how their lives are going at work, both the funny and the serious aspects of it. And I've been struck by uh, the amount of concern that I'm hearing from workers about the increasing difficulty that they feel at work being a Christian. Uh, I spoke with one person recently who told me about uh, seminars, workplace seminars that he had to go to where they were taught how to uh, deal with customers in a respectful way. And there was a whole bunch of categories of people, including LGBT. And it wasn't that he objected to being aware of how to be respectful with other, with other people, uh, but on that particular topic, they delved in deeper and deeper to the point where they even had little small group discussions where they were asked personally about their emotional uh, response and, and delving into their thoughts about the other person. It wasn't just being respectful. It was, well, this person felt like they were um, unfairly digging into his own personal life and thoughts. It felt under siege. Uh, other stories I've heard, one particular person who was told, he was a board member of a large organisation, was told he has to choose between being a member of a prominent Christian organisation and remaining on that board. So he had to resign. Uh, I've also noticed an increasing amount of... Sorry. Uh, an increasing amount of emotion uh, on the TV. Uh, there was a debate I saw about scripture in schools. There were two non-Christians there and a Christian. The two non-Christians gave an emotional answer as to why we shouldn't have scripture in schools. An extraordinary thing was neither of them felt like they had to give a rational answer. The emotional was enough. Uh, the Christian gave a reasoned response, a respectful one, but it was, it was just like two different worlds. Uh, just the other day I heard a comment on TV... Uh, someone said, well, of course you can forgive. It was, they were talking about a Russian athlete who was uh, using performance-enhancing drugs. And they said, well, of course you can uh, forgive that person and they can get back into competing. They're not the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church. The meaning is you can't forgive the church. This is post-Royal Commission. And the attitude is uh, broadening. So, for example, City Bible Forum had an event... Uh, in another city in, in Australia, uh, and their venue was cancelled shortly before the event. And the reason given, we don't hire out our venue to Christians. Now, legally, they've got nothing to stand on, but you need wisdom in those situations to know how to respond. Well, how, how are we to think and how are we to feel in moments like that? We ask God, where are you? What are you doing in this situation? How should we be acting? One of the great things about uh, this passage that we're reading is how it helps to give us perspective. Recently I've discovered how one of my joys in Canberra is getting uh, to hear the stories of the Karen refugees from Burma. 
Uh, there's a whole congregation of them in Canberra that I know about. And that's really helped me to get perspective. There's one particular person there. Uh, if you go to that congregation, you'll hear his story. Apparently he tells his story every, every, uh, every time he's there. Uh, how he was rescued in Burma. He was stuck between a rock and a hard place. The um, Karen Liberation Army and the Burmese Army. And, uh, you know, if you're seen to be helping the other, you get it in the, in the neck from the other side. And sometimes you just can't, there are no choices. And in one situation he was doing something to help the KLA uh, and he was on his way home riding a bike and uh, ran into soldiers. He went into a hut. He was encircled by 40 soldiers. They said they would burn it if he didn't come out. What do you do in that situation? He prayed. And he knew when he prayed that God would not necessarily save him. But he knew that God is listening. And he prayed. And then he heard the soldiers go away. He was saved. He's got five children. And his daughter will tell you, he can't stop telling people about this, about what happened to him and how God was good to him. He knew there was no guarantee, but he also knew there was a God. And in extraordinary situations, God does put his hand out and rescue his people. God does make sure that the word of his son goes out. And that's what we're reminded of in this passage. We really do need perspective. And it's not just religious uh, suffering. People die all around us. Recently, we've been remembering the tens of thousands of Australians who gave their lives, sacrificed their lives, that we would live in peace in Australia. Anzac Day. Uh, there's a lot of suffering that goes on. There's random suffering that goes on. Um, and, and we need perspective. Let, let me give you an example. Uh, how many of you read the article yesterday about 50 cars in Canberra getting their windows smashed? Yeah. Funny story, right? Because it wasn't one of your windows. It was one of ours. It's going to cost us $500. So that means significant amount to us. But then on the other hand, think how fortunate we are. We have a car. We can find that money to replace that window. Most people in the world would be fortunate if they just earned a few dollars working hard for one day. I can find the money to replace the window. Well, we need perspective. There are many changes going on around us. The world is changing. It's just extraordinary. We're moving from the industrial technological age to the data age, and, and practically every job is going to be affected. And people are moving. Over the last 200 years, we've changed from 5% of the world's population living in cities to 50%. That's a huge change. And in all of these changes, with all the multiculturalism and everything that's going on, there is one God who doesn't change, who remains faithful and upon whom we can call, we can pray, and we can expect him to answer. For God is here. He's with us. The book of Acts tells us in chapter 17 that the, the ethnic groupings around the world are determined by God. He sets the boundaries he sets the times and he does it so that people might reach out and find him. There is one God at work. He wants people to know about his son, Jesus Christ. He's, he's, he's just over the moon about his son. 
That's the central feature of human history. God is in control. The gospel is going out. So the great thing about this passage, chapter 12, is it helps to give us perspective in our difficulties and it gives us a vision and a confidence that is infectious. And we find this in a very surprising place. Let's begin verse 1, chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Things are looking very ominous for Peter. This is Herod, the grandson of Herod the Great, who is famous for slaughtering the innocent children. This, this particular Herod... Uh, was a great example of ancient rulers. Extremely uh, ruthless, great at using connections and at manipulating people. Uh, Very good at getting on the side of the the Jewish leaders, as you see here, Uh, someone who was uh, a perfectionist at uh, manipulating people. So poor old Peter really had reasons to see the end of his days. Just before, in chapter 11, we we were told that the gospel has been going out in leaps and bounds. So even Peter's role in, in the gospel going out is not quite so essential anymore. And Christians no longer had the favour that they had, if you remember near the beginning of Acts, we're told that the Christians were in favour with the people, with the crowds. So the leaders, they were limited in how much suffering they could inflict on the Christians. But this is changing. uh, Jesus also prophesied that Peter would be martyred. And Peter's understanding of Jesus' words were that he would go before John. So we see James has been killed with the sword. In Peter's mind, he's next. But the first clue that things may not go Herod's way is in verse 5. So on the one hand, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Let me ask you, what's your first instinct when the crisis comes, when the challenge in life is in front of you? Is it to pray? Are you more aware of God's presence or that challenge that's in front of you? This passage is certainly encouraging us to pray. It's it's probably the big main message of this passage. And the Christians here are a great example in their earnest praying. But it's not all positive. Uh, And Luke is a very honest writer. He's an historian who doesn't filter out the embarrassing bits, including Christians. In fact, if you look at the passage, there's more humour in this passage than sadness. And it's humour at the expense of Christians. And it begins in a gentle way in verse 6. The night before Herod was, was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Uh, Do you see what's funny about that verse? He's sleeping while the others 
are up at night time earnestly praying and concerned for Peter. The one they're so concerned about is asleep. So what is going on? And this has been going on for days. This man is going to face a sword in the morning. He will go like James and it's a gruesome death. It's not a nice chemical assisted death. And he has the memory of that death still in his mind. What is it with Peter? Even if you just think about it in terms of the cold floor in the prison, two chains, that's double the normal number because Herod really wants to make sure this is going to be a good show trial that goes off and uh, does all the right things. How do you sleep with the rattling chains? He's got no earplugs, no eye patches, all those kinds of things that we need to sleep. What's going on? And in verse 7, we're told he is so deep asleep that the angel has to strike him to wake him up. He struck him. And that's the same word that's used later in the passage when the angel strikes Herod. Fortunately, Peter doesn't get killed by being struck. But it's not that nice, you know, he massaged him on the shoulders, sort of gently nudged him or something like that. What is it? Well, it seems to me that this is actually one of Peter's brighter spots. I think he actually was at peace, knowing he will be with his maker. I think he went to sleep praying. I think he was thankful that God had used him in his life, that many people had come to know God through him. I think he was thankful that there were people who cared about him, that were praying for him, that there was a future secure I don't think Peter was one of those martyrs that are just dying to be martyred. He doesn't have that martyrdom complex. I think he just prayed at peace with God. And we should remember that everyone expected Peter to die. If you look at verse 15 and 16, when Rhoda told them about Peter, what did they say? You're out of your mind. Verse 16 when they saw Peter, they were astonished. So the very people that are praying for, G- uh, for Peter to be released are astonished and surprised when he's released. So one of the main messages for us from this passage is pray and expect. It's great that those Christians were praying in that room fervently, all night prayer meetings. Sure, that's great. But God's giving us a bit of a nudge and there's a bit of humour that, Peter, uh, that uh, Luke is employing that we go that extra step. I think God deserves that dignity, that we expect the prayers to be answered. And I wonder, when we think about Peter's situation, would we be so far at peace if we were to face even just a, a chemical execution the next day. I couldn't help thinking of Andrew Chan of the Bali Nine, who you probably know became a Christian when he was in jail. He was a convicted drug smuggler. But what an extraordinary change that happened to him while in jail. He cared for the other prisoners. He was involved in their, in their teaching and their training. And on the night before they took him out into the fields to get shot... 
He was praying, singing. Apparently they were joking around, sharing stories, uh, forgiving his executioners if, if that's what they needed. And before getting shot, singing Amazing Grace. I just wonder how would we fare in similar circumstances? Now, Peter wasn't guilty for the execution that he thought was coming up. But both Peter and Andrew knew their maker and they were both at peace. And if today you're not at peace with God and if you were to face the end of your life, for whatever reason, it could be a car accident. Do you know that peace that even a convicted criminal can have? Don't go away today without finding out. Ask the person next to you. So I think this is actually one of Peter in one of his uh, bright spots. He's a great example of being at peace with God. Okay, he does expect to die, but let's face it, everyone in this passage expects it. Herod expects it, the soldiers expect it, the crowds, the Jewish leaders, even the Christians that are praying for him to be released, they expect him to die. So it's not surprising. But there is one in this passage that doesn't expect Peter to die. Did you notice that? There is one. There's one simple girl. The fact that she's a young girl doesn't come out in this passage, but Rhoda, someone who's important enough to have her name enshrined in the passage, is expecting God to answer the prayers. Did you notice in verse 14... She recognised Peter's voice. She didn't need a lot of convincing. She didn't see him, she just heard the voice. Rhoda, it seems to me, is the hero of the passage. She's the mature child of faith. And on the other hand, we have the immature, know-it-all adults who call her a fool. It's a bit like the resurrection when the women went to tell the men and they were told they're just babblers in Luke chapter 24. There's one commentary I read about this where they actually wrote how Rhoda was surprised and full of excitement. It doesn't say surprised. She was not surprised. She was excited. She was full of joy. That was her instant reaction We are quick to laugh at Rhoda, the silly girl leaving Peter outside. It is funny. But actually, in the end, the joke's on us. Rhoda is the hero of the passage. She's the mature one. And did you notice how Peter is presented when he's woken up by the angel? He's actually described as a child. Put on your clothes and sandals, verse 8. Wrap your cloak around you. That's the way you talk to a child. You've got to spell it out. So Luke's message for us, it seems to me the main message in this passage, is pray and expect, for God is with you. Everything around you might look the opposite. But follow Rhoda's example. Pray, expect. 
Now, some of us might be thinking, look, just the praying bits are difficult at the moment. I've really, life's just, you know, wheels have gone off and I'm, I don't know about praying. Can I encourage you just to pray the Lord's Prayer once a day? You can't get much shorter than the Lord's Prayer. You can't get better theology than the Lord's Prayer. What a simple prayer. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honoured. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. See, we can talk about our needs, what we need to live from day to day, but it is in the context of praying for the kingdom to come. So there's great theology here that, that also works on us. It's great to meditate on. See, how much money do I really need to get through my life here on earth? Do I really need all those special things that I'm dreaming on, that I'm planning on, that I'm committed to? What about what's really going on around me? God is working through all of history for the sake of his son. What, what am I doing it's a very simple prayer, the Lord's Prayer. So easy to say. You can reflect on it for an hour. It's so deep. And then just finishes with praying for our sins, the ones we commit to others, forgiveness for those who sin against us, and that we don't fall into temptation. They're the core things of life. The other good thing about the Lord's Prayer is the emphasis on us. Forgive us our sins. When we say us, it includes all of us. So as soon as I'm asking for forgiveness for myself, I'm asking for you as well. And you might have just heard me. It's a great prayer that just lines us up with God's purposes and the centrality of what he's on about. So let us pray and expect for God is with us. People like the Korean people are a good reminder to us. They're not really well biblically trained on the whole. Uh, apparently they, a lot of them became Christians through the odd verse that they heard, heard in the uh, camps. They don't have much access to Bibles. One church in Canberra, no, I think it was the Canberra, the Women's Convention, I think they raised about $7,000 to send Bibles, someone's nodding here, to, to the Korean people. They're not the really well Bible-taught part of Christianity, but their faith can be a lot more theologically sound. Let us pray and expect, for God is with us. Now, if you're here and you're not so sure that God is with us, that maybe God doesn't even exist, let me encourage you to check out the sources. Have a read of Luke. He's a great historian. Compare it with other sources. Uh, it just so happens this particular passage is described by jo Josephus and in much more detail than what uh, Luke provides. Essentially the same uh, he, he goes into a lot of details about the garment and how magnificent Herod looked. Apparently it was, a, it was, a, it was an entire silver threaded garment. And in the early rays of the sun was wondrously radiant and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. And straightway his flatterers raised their voices from various directions, though hardly for their good, for his good, addressing him as a god. We get the same words. Um, he accepts their praise and uh, just slight different description about his death. So here we're told, 
that pain gripped him in his stomach and an ache that he felt everywhere at once that was intense from the start. They hastened to convey him to the palace and the word flashed about to everyone that he was on the very verge of death. Exhausted after five straight days by the pain in the abdomen, he departed this life in the 54th year of his life and the seventh of his reign. That was the end of Herod. The great Herod. Now we don't always get this happening. God doesn't strike down everybody that's arrogant, unjust, unloving, who kills, who who tortures people. Most of the time it doesn't happen. But we have enough examples to know that God is just. We do have the warnings. And we also know it's not just the Herods who will face judgment when Christ returns. We know that every one of us will. We know that every good, polite, politically correct person will still have to face up to God. And the, the only real question is, do you belong to Jesus? Are you part of his family? Do you know forgiveness? Are you at peace if you were to die tonight? This is a great passage because it, it gives us perspective. It gets us focused on what the big issues are, what are the core issues in life. I'll just leave you with one last story, a, a guy I chatted with recently who told me about his workplace, or actually a previous one he was working at. And it was a time when he was a very young Christian. He'd only just got to know uh, the basic details of Christianity. And in the workplace, he was starting to be very different. Uh, one of the main things that stood out, he said, was that in that workplace, it was just assumed that men could be unfaithful to their wives. It was perfectly all right, as long as their wives didn't find out. Because what harm would there be? Just as long as she doesn't get hurt if she finds out. And he was the only one that was different. From what little he knew about God, he knew that unfaithfulness was not part of life. He begged to differ uh, and he got in trouble at work. People, people got quite angry with him because they said, look, who on earth you, do you think you are telling us that we should be faithful and stay with our wives for our whole lives. You're not even old. You're a young guy. What would you know? You arrogant so-and-so. And his answer to them was, look, it's not because I'm good. It's not because I think I'm better than you. It's just that God has been faithful to me. That's why I want to be faithful to my wife. This guy had very little theology but he understood the core issue, the core relational issue. He understood that God was with him. He answers prayers. He brings opportunities. And he took them to make Christ known to others.